So the question was posed to me uh, several weeks ago. What does prayer do for God? What does He get out of it? And my teaching on prayer and in our discussions about prayer and in the general church culture at large, when we talk about prayer, we think a lot about us and what we get out of it. And let me tell you, it's a two-way conversation. So it's right and good to think about us and our experience in it and what we get out of it. But we're going to step away from that and look at it from a different perspective today. When this question was posed to me, I had some originally I had some ideas that immediately flowed my mind into my mind, but it was kind of like big picture stuff. I didn't really know like where exactly I would go to in scripture to find that info. Well, just a day or two later, I'm just reading part of Revelation and I saw it so clearly and I am excited about our passage today. So there was a survey done some years ago. My intro is going to be a little bit longer than usual today. But my, there was a survey done a few years ago. And church members were from a wide number of churches and a wide number of denominational and theological backgrounds were surveyed. And they asked, what book of the Bible do you most want to hear your pastor teach on? And the overwhelming majority said, we want to hear teaching on the book of Revelation. So the, simultaneously, another survey was done amongst pastors. Which book of the Bible do you least, or which book of the Bible do you want to stay away from and, and, and don't want to preach? <laughs> the overwhelming response to that question was the revelation of Jesus Christ. So last fall, we got into Mark 13. Many of you remember that. Brother Chuck preached one Sunday. I preached the other Sunday on it. And I spent months preparing for that message. But as I, pre- as I was preparing for that, it started me on a journey that I've been on the last seven or eight months where I'm just like diving into what does the Bible say about the end times. And I, I, over the years, I've kind of decided you know, that I didn't believe a few things that are popular and even acceptable teachings within the church. But I had kind of, you know... This is harder to figure out than things like the Trinity or salvation by faith. You know, it's the book of Revelation allows for a large number of interpretations that that can be acceptable among Christians. Hear me say that. I don't expect all of us to agree in this room. Some of you will disagree with what I say today, portions of it. And let me tell you, that is totally okay. Okay, there will be portions of what I share, like what I'm sharing in two minutes that you may disagree with me about, and that's okay. We must approach the book of Revelation with incredible humility. So the two things that I have kind of decided in my own mind in the last six or eight months has been that we must not assume that the book of Revelation is chronological. Many people teach, and these are godly, amazing people that I have incredible respect for, Many people teach the beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of the book as a chronological out, like uh, a storyline of the future. I've got a lot of reasons why I don't think that's the case, and today's not the day to go into that. 
But I believe that these chapters do tell us much about the future, but a lot of it describes what's going on in the present day. And the second thing that I feel very strongly about, and I, and I think most of us would agree with this, is that if, if we are going to understand Revelation, that we need to take, think through the symbols and the imagery that we find in the Old Testament. Things like temples and gardens and stuff like that. And you'll see more about what I'm talking about in the next little bit. But I've come to feel like I feel like my understanding of this book has gotten better and stronger because I've had to go back to the Old Testament and think through the lens of the Old Testament and some of the symbols and the imagery that the original readers would have been extremely familiar with. And that's, that's been helpful for me. It's been helpful. It's clearing some of the fog and the confusion that I have felt towards the book of Revelation for many years. So, all that being said, what's going on in Revelation 5? Okay? In chapter 4, in order to answer that, in chapter 4, verse 1, a vision begins where Jesus is showing the apostle John things that must soon take place. And there's a heavenly, it, it says there's a door standing open in heaven. And so John participates, he goes in, and what he sees, what's shown to us in chapter 4, is this heavenly throne room. And God is seated on a throne. And the description of this throne room and, and of God himself is incredibly brilliant, beautiful, majestic, and awesome. So regardless of what interpretational approach you take to Revelation, we all agree on this, and this is where our unity is is that God is beautiful, amazing, and awesome, and He is to be worshipped. And that is very clear in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 and throughout the book. But we see this heavenly throne room, and there's four very strange, unusual-looking creatures that are close to the throne. And then there's 24 other thrones that are around the throne that's on the center, and there are seated 24 elders... And what they do is worship. And they worship. And they worship and they worship and they worship God who is worthy. Then we get to chapter 5. And God who is on the throne has a scroll. Alright? Think ancient scroll. Think two pieces of iron wood with paper rolled around it. Or maybe, excuse me, maybe even one piece of made one wooden rod with paper around it. And this scroll is in the hand of him who is seated on the throne, and it is sealed. So what is a seal? A seal is something that the king or whoever was sending the scroll would put on it, and that seal would show that it's his, it's from him, and it would also show who the scroll is meant for, who is worthy or who has the authority or position to open the scroll, to break the seal, to see what is in the scroll. So the scroll is there, there's seven seals on it, and there's this big problem in the beginning of chapter 5. Nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And there's great distress. What's going to happen? What? There's a problem here. And then we get to chapter 5, verse 5, and one who is worthy is there to open the scroll. So I'm going to read from chapter 5, verse 5, through 10. Chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, 
Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. There's no doubt about that. So verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, do you see him describing the throne room? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So in the midst of this heavenly worship gathering, the Lamb begins to break the seals. We see that in the rest of chapter 5. And there's judgment and other things that take place. One, two, three, four, five, six seals are broken. Every time a seal is broken by the Lamb, something happens. But then we get to the seventh seal, and this is where we get to chapter 8. This is what happens when the seventh seal is broken. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. We'll stop there. We will stop there. So there are some common themes between these two passages. Let's just check them out. Let's dive right in. Uh, read it yourself a few times. This discussion could go a lot of different places, and that's okay. Uh, Sister Jean is leading at this table. My wife Jennifer is leading at that table, and I'll be leading here. And when the, So read it to yourself, and when the time's right, your discussion leader will get it started. All right, everyone should have the, all the answers. We're going to do a pop quiz later before we leave, and it will be graded strictly. All right? So, oh, goodness, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. I have you know I spent about twice as much time preparing to teach this today as what I commonly do a typical message. But I think it's something we need to look at. I think it's something that we need to be mindful of. So I told you a little while ago that... And understanding and familiarity helps of the, from the Old Testament helps us understand Revelation. Earlier this year, we looked at a thing called the tabernacle. God's people had been slaves in Egypt for many generations, and they cried out to God. God delivered them from slavery, and He said, I'm going to give you a land. Start heading that way. And on the way there, it was a long trip, but on the way there, God said to His people... 
that I want you to build me a sanctuary where my name can dwell. Exodus 25 eight. I want you to build a sanctuary for me where my name can dwell. God wanted to dwell amongst his people. So he gave Moses, the leader, um, instructions to build what is called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And it was a tent. It was a more of a heavy, du- heavy it was much more heavy duty than what you'd go camping in for the weekend. It was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet tall. It was uh, like a rectangular cube structure. And it had a little fence or, or large fence that went around it and some other things in, in the courtyard outside of this tent of meeting. But inside of this tent of meeting, worship would take place. The entire purpose for this tabernacle was for God to dwell there. And wherever God is, he is worthy of worship. So they're going to worship him. And he appointed priests to lead that worship. So there was two rooms. And one room was large and one room was small. And the large room, the priests would go in every single day to do different things to worship God. And then there was a veil or a curtain that covered the door that went into the smaller room. The larger room that they were in every day was called the holy place. The smaller room was called the holiest place or the holy of holies. And the Ark of the Covenant was in there and that is where God dwelled. And people, priests, could go into the larger room every day. They were supposed to go in every day. But into that smaller room, the priest was only supposed to go one time a year. And that's called the Day of Atonement. Well, when you're in the big room, right before you go through the veil into the little room, there's this altar. It's called the altar of incense. It was made of wood. It was covered with gold. Probably about this size, maybe just a little bit shorter, is this pulpit right here before me. And on it, twice a day, the priest was supposed to put incense. And incense was supposed to burn. And there was to be a cloud or smoke, and then aroma that was very, very pleasing to the nostrils. And one of the themes, one of the ideas that we see throughout the Old Testament is the idea of incense and the smoke from animal offerings being a pleasing aroma to God. So we've got this little thing that incense is burnt on Inside of the tabernacle. Leviticus chapter 30, God gives instructions. He says that Aaron, he's the priest, high priest, shall burn fragrant incense on it. Alright, it's going to smell good. It's fragrant. Every morning he's going to go in and he's going to do it. And every night before going to bed, he's going to go in and he's going to put an incense offering on it. And this word offering, most of the time when you see this in the Bible, it's a worship word. It's, it, Ephesians 5.2 says that Christ gave himself as a sacrificial offering. Well, that same word is often used, Old Testament and New Testament, to describe the worship of people giving themselves or giving something to God. And that this is supposed to be a regular offering throughout your generations. So the original plan was that incense would take place as an offering of worship throughout your generations. So there's a a long-term picture here. 
Later on in Exodus chapter 30, God tells the people how to make the incense. In Leviticus chapter 16, He tells the people what has to happen when you go into that holy of holy place, the smaller room that you could only go in once a year. And and when they did that, the high priest, only one man once a year could go in. The high priest would take coals from the altar outside the tent where the animal had been sacrificed. The perfect animal would be killed. They'd be placed on the altar and the body would be burned. And they would take coals from this and they would put it in a little censer. And most likely that censer was a small object, had a handle, a few chains coming from it. And then almost like a bowl here. If you've ever been to an Orthodox church or maybe even a Roman Catholic church, you may have seen something like this. But and inside that little bowl or that little plate, whatever it might be, they would take coals from the altar where the animal had just been slaughtered. And then they would take some of the good smelling incense that had not caught fire yet and they would put it on the coals. And immediately the incense would burn and the smoke would go up into the air and the pleasing aroma would go up to God. And it was part of worship. Well, in the temple, incense was constantly burning, 24-7. There was a constant cloud and smoke in the presence of God. And incense for the people became an object or or became a, a symbol for worship. God is the object of worship, but the incense would become a symbol for our worship. Worship is what we do when we gather, and it's supposed to be what we do every day as individuals. But worship is the appropriate response that we are to have to God. It is to be a constant activity and also a posture in our lives and how we conduct ourselves and carry ourselves and and live our lives in this world. The burning incense in the tabernacle would travel upward and through this symbol we come to understand how God receives our worship. What we are doing here today is going up to God. And He receives it. And it is a pleasing aroma. In the book of Revelation, we see incense. And we see symbolism all throughout. And these symbols communicate truth to us. Communicate things that are real. And much of the language in certain parts of the Bible, but especially in the book of Revelation, is figurative or symbolic. But it, that doesn't mean that it's not important. And it doesn't mean that it's not real. You know, my baby Karis is going to be eight weeks old tomorrow. And usually with a newborn, that first month or two the baby's around, she's not looking at you straight in the eyeball. Her eyes are still developing. You know... Day one, when she's here, you know, light is kind of a brand new thing, right? Because <laughs> it's been dark for nine months. It takes time for a baby's vision to develop. And I can recall with my different children, I, I, I can recall some of them looking at me and making that eye contact that most of you are making with me right now. And it's so cool the first time that happens. It's like, wow, she saw me, and she saw me seeing her. Well, that happened Friday morning. It was fun. 
We've done eating breakfast a little bit early. I had a few minutes before I was going to leave to come out here to get some work done. And I'm holding her on the couch. Evangeline is right beside me. And I get really excited. And Evangeline says, what's going on? And, and I, I tell her, I, I said that her eyes just reached out and grabbed a hold of mine. That's what I told her. I said, her eyes just reached out and grabbed a hold of mine. Now, Evangeline knew what I meant, but she asked this, just to be fun and sweet like she is. She says, Daddy, are you saying that her eyeballs have little hands and that she just reached out and was holding on to you? And I said, yes, I am. In one sense, yes. Her little eyeballs grew little hands and they reached out and grabbed hold of my eyeballs. In another sense, no. But there's this literal nature in our language and in our conversation and in the Bible. But there's also this figurative, metaphorical usage of language. And it's also in the Bible. You know, so we can debate all day what exactly is what. You know, and we probably wouldn't be any better off, you know, at the end than where we were at the beginning. But what we see with this incense is that it is a symbol of our worship. There are two more places in the Old Testament. There's dozens of places, but two more places I want to look at in the Old Testament. So, and we're not going to be in either of these places long. But in Psalm 141, David is praying. And he says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. What does God get out of our prayers? Well, what does incense do for God? It is a pleasing aroma. David understands this about worship and about prayer. And he says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And then, in the very last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. Okay, it was about 400 years before Jesus came. Things were not going good for God's people. Most of them didn't give a rip about God. And in chapter 1, Malachi prophesies about a time that was yet to come. And this is beautiful. He says in Malachi 1, this is verse 11. He prophesies, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So at that time, his name was not great among the nations because there weren't people from all nations worshiping him. But Malachi is saying there's a time to come in the future. So he goes on and he says, In every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering. Okay, the Jewish people were supposed to be offering incense to God in their worship. And Malachi is saying that more, I don't know, more impressive worship is about to take place. A deeper, more global worship experience and prayer life is coming. And he says, in every place, Incense will be offered to my name. The plan is that God is going global. And he's been working with his Jewish people for a while, but he's about to go global. And we see that in the church age with Jesus and everything that happened afterward and everything that's happening today. But he prophesies that in every place the incense will be offered to my name. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. See, the incense in the tabernacle present or, or appoints to a greater reality. It points to the worship and to the prayers of God's people under the new covenant 
ascending up to God and bringing pleasure to God. This is a prophecy of the worship and the prayers of Christians. Just going up steadily to God. Your prayers, if you're praying rightly, and we looked at that very closely the last two weeks, if you're praying rightly, your prayers don't hit the ceiling. They don't. Now where do they go? I'm really glad you asked. Let's look at that. Turn to Revelation now. Revelation chapter 5. Here's where your prayers go. Verse 8. Revelation 5. Verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll. We're talking about the lamb with all the horns and eyeballs. When he had taken the scroll. The four living creatures. And the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each holding a harp. And golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. So four creatures, 24 elders, there's 28 of them. Sounds like they all, there's 28 harps and there's 28 bowls. They've got their hands full. And what's in the bowls? The prayers of the saints. Now is this Mary, the mother of Jesus? Is this Mother Teresa? Is this St. Thomas and St. Peter and St. Francis Assisi? Well, they're probably included. But the word saint does not primarily mean some really awesome Christian from ages past. The word saint actually has a very simple meaning. In the Greek, when you look at how it's created, it's very clearly defined, or it very clearly shows that a saint is a holy one. Did you know that if you believe in Jesus, you are holy? If you have placed your faith in Christ, if you've been saved by grace, God has made you holy and Jesus' righteousness belongs to you. His righteousness has been put into your bank account, in a sense, for the sake of illustration. And because you have His righteousness and His perfection, you are holy when God sees you, even though you did something stupid this morning. Isn't God good? Amen. Okay. God counts you holy. So when it says the prayers of the saints, he's talking about his holy people. He's talking about the people that Malachi was prophesying about. The people from all over the world whom God would save now have a relationship with him. He is now our father. We're praying. We're sending our prayers up to him. And they're being gathered in his presence. And they're in these bowls. Before him. Now we read that all the elders and the living creatures fell down. I'm wondering, did the prayers fall out of the bowls on the floor? I mean, they were there to God. I don't know. I'm just wondering. But it's a scene. It's an image. That is beautiful. It is incredible. What does prayer do for God? When you pray. If you know Jesus, you are a saint. And when you pray... It's as if a golden, golden bowl of incense is being taken into the throne room of God. And the aroma is going up. And He smells it. Oh, that's nice. What does prayer do for God? Our prayers bring pleasure to Him. 
When you pray rightly according to the scripture, you please your father. You make him, I'll say happy. There's probably better words for it. (laughs) But he takes pleasure in it. Now please note that nowhere in Revelation 5 does it say that the prayers of those who are not saints go up to God. There's a lot of people praying, but they're not praying to him. There's a lot of people praying, but they don't have a relationship with Him. I, I, I got a feeling that many of their prayers are hitting the ceiling. But if you are a child of God, your prayers do not hit the ceiling when you pray correctly. But for those that are not children of God, He doesn't receive those prayers the way He receives ours. Now, someone who's not a child of God can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So will He hear their prayer? Absolutely. But we have a special relationship with our Father because He's adopted us into His family. One more thing I want to look at from chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Notice the incense is not burning yet. It's just there. It's not burning yet. So let's go and look at chapter 8. I'll read verse 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. In verse 3, notice that there is an altar in this throne room. This altar is before the throne where God dwells, just like the altar was before the Holy of Holies where God dwelled in the tabernacle back in the Old Testament. So it's a lot of similarities here. There's an altar of incense right before the place that God dwells. Notice also in verse 3 that there is an angel with a golden censer. That censer is the thing I told you about. You got the handle, you got the chains, you got a little bowl or a plate or something, okay, and the burning stuff is on the, in the little bowl. But there's an angel with a golden censer. It reminds me of the high priest entering the Holy of Holies once a year, taking the incense in to the place where God dwelled. In Revelation chapter 5, the incense was being held by 24 elders in golden bowls, and it was not burning yet. But in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, the angel was given incense and the prayers of the saints. Here, they are two different things. In chapter 5, the incense was the prayers of the saints. And that these things are given as an offering. Look at verse 3. He was given much incense to do what? To offer. There's that worship language again. And it is beautiful. In Revelation chapter 8, we see the incense and our prayers are burning together. And the smoke of it is ascending up to the throne of God and it is a pleasing aroma. Our prayers bring pleasure to our Father. We see that in verse 4. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. It pleased God. As every offering of our worship brings pleasure to God, God is pleased 
when we as His children cry out to Him. So every Sunday, whoever preaches God's Word has the responsibility of sharing good news. And I've already done that. It's good news that God is pleased to hear us pray. But there's even better news. And y'all know what I'm about to say, and I've got to talk about it. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. There's a song of worship going up to the Lamb. And it says that they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This lamb who was worthy to break the seals was slain. I told you it was Jesus earlier. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away our sin. He was punished for it. He became guilty. He took on our shame. He did everything right. And He was treated as if He did everything wrong like we did. Now, He is being worshipped. And He is worthy of worship. Because He is so good. Because He will look us straight in the eye. Needy sinners who have broken the law of God. And He says, come to Me. Believe in Me. And I will give you eternal life. Jesus saves. Place your faith. In Him. He became the sacrifice. Because there wasn't a sacrifice good enough that we could have got together to bring to Him. He loves you. He loves you dearly. And He has poured Himself out for you. And I say to you, church, let us follow suit. Let us pour ourselves out in worship to Him. Because He is good And He is awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for Your truth. You have met with us in Your Word. And I pray, God, that we may be encouraged to pray. To pray correctly. To pray diligently to pray faithfully. Would you be pleased as our prayers are offered up to you?